Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're talking about subterranean spaces in Call of Cthulhu. But first, the news. Well, I suppose the big news is that we're about to turn five. I feel a lot older than that. Yeah, but I mean, we've been doing this for five years, guys. Five years. Five years. We've been doing this for five years. That sounded almost like a quote from Gross Point Blank. <laughs> <laughs> As is evidenced by our vast collection of podcasts. Yeah. How did this all happen? It doesn't feel like five years, and it doesn't feel like 131 episodes. Time. Time has this really fucking annoying habit of just marching on. That's yeah. why. Well, I, I swear I'm just 25. Yeah. Don't let the goal of the grey hair fool you. I'm... Plus VAT. <laughs> I had a trip out this week. A trip out to the cinema. Oh, yeah? Uh-oh. What, what did you go and see? A mystery. Oh, did you go to another one of these uh, secret horror cinemas? Yeah. Things? Scream Unseen at yeah. the Odeon. Oh, what so did you see this time? It's only £5, but you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. We're keeping that five thing going then, yeah? Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was there with a couple of friends, and up it comes. I think, oh, I vaguely recognise the title. It was a sequel. It was The Strangers. Oh. Subtitle, Pray at Night. Ah, any good? Bunch of ass. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be fair, I seem to be in the minority of one for feeling that way about the first film. I don't know. Home invasion films don't tend to really get to me unless they do something quite special. I mean, most of them just seem to, you know, use the basic fear that there's someone out there they want to get into your know, house and, and do something horrible. Unless you do something really imaginative with that setup, we've seen it so many times. Well, this one premises there's a family. Mother, father, son, daughter, son, daughter, late teenage, college years, and the daughter has to go to college. So for some weird reason, they have to drive to their uncle and aunt's place to get the girl there as a sort of stepping stone onto her getting her to college. The place where her uncle and aunt, I say live, because they're dead now, but it's basically Crystal Lake. They get there, it's a holiday camp. (laughs) <laughs> and there's loads of chalets and it's off season so the only people there are uncle and aunt who are dead and you know some psychos who are going to try and kill everybody okay that one well, i want to say everybody the family one at a time right um some innovative wow. stuff right there yeah I, I i shall go out and start queuing up at the cinema now to Do. see this well it's not it hasn't opened yet so yeah. probably right. by the time this podcast goes out it'll be it'll probably been and gone but I was going to say, you'd probably be fighting against the queues getting into Infinity War at the minute. And you don't get Liv Tyler in this one either. Well, okay, that, that's the one redeeming feature gone. I believe we've already mentioned this in a previous episode, but with the whole theme of time marching on, Expo's creeping up on us, guys. Yeah, by the time this episode goes out, it'll be on, what, two or three days after this episode is released. Yep, right. so it takes place on the 1st to the 3rd of June, 2018. That's Games Expo at Birmingham, UK. And we plan on being there. I mean, we'll probably all be there, but it's not 100% guaranteed. Just on the Friday, on the 1st. So if you're there and you see us wandering around, please do come up, say hi. Probably see me fighting my way towards the bring and buy and then heading off to, uh, heading off to a tournament. Quiescence. Quiescence. 
And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word is onyx. As a noun, one, a type of quartz that occurs in bands of different colours, often black and white. Is there any other colour? Or as an adjective, one, black, especially jet black. And this may not be the most obvious choice as a Lovecraftian word of the week, but dear God, he used it a lot. Just a bit. Yeah, and this turns up 82 times in his work as Onyx and once as Sardonyx. He loved talking about Onyx. What the hell is Sardonyx? Uh, Sardonyx is a variant of Onyx. It it sounds like Sardonyx, It does, it really does. But it's a type of Onyx that's mixed with another mineral and gives it, I think, a reddish cast. I think the reason why this is such a popular word in Lovecraft is that he used it an awful lot in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, where just about everything in the Dreamland seems to be made of either onyx or basalt. I guess it is because of the fact that he uses it so much in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, but it surprised me that for someone who loved poetic allusions and really evocative words that describe simple things that Lovecraft didn't really use onyx in its adjectival form. And you'd think that onyx is is describing black Stygian depths and stuff like that. But no, most of the time when Lovecraft talks about onyx, he's talking about onyx, which I, I don't know, I found vaguely disappointing. And now we take a look at how Lovecraft used the word onyx in his writings. From the Hound. It was a secret room far, far underground where huge winged demons, carven of basalt and onyx, vomited from wide grinning mouths weird green and orange light, and hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death the lines of red charnel things, hand in hand, woven in voluminous black hangings. And from the dream quest of unknown Kadath, at length, Sick with longing for those glittering sunset streets and cryptical hill lanes among ancient tiled roofs, nor able sleeping or waking to drive them from his mind, Carter resolved to go with bold entreaty whither no man had gone before, and dare the icy deserts through the dark to where unknown Kadath, veiled in cloud and crowned with unimagined stars, holds secret and nocturnal the onyx castle of the Great Ones. And from the rats in the walls. I heard voices and yowls and echoes, but above all there gently rose that impious, insidious scurrying, gently rising, rising as a stiff bloated corpse gently rises above an oily river that flows under endless onyx bridges to a black, putrid sea. And now on to our main topic, subterranean spaces in Lovecraft and Call of Cthulhu. I Lovecraft did love deep dark holes it seems his stories are absolutely filled with underground spaces they're probably one of the most common themes that you can pick out in his stories the you know, the idea that in the world beneath our feet there is hidden from us this strange wondrous place and yeah we'll, we'll, we'll dig into this as we go on 
Yet surprisingly, one that I thought was fairly well hidden because I wasn't quite thinking of as many stories that came up. There's definitely obvious links, things like Rats in the Walls, the outside that we've covered on previous episodes. But then when you suddenly think of, oh, yeah, of course, that's underground. Oh, yeah, that is too. Oh, Mm. yeah, so is this. But, yeah, it's just stuff that didn't immediately leap out. It's probably worth saying that we've picked out a number of the more striking examples from Lovecraft's fiction but in a great number of his stories uh, you can find at least sort of passing reference to these hidden places. We've just really tried to go for the major ones here. Well let's get on our knees and start digging into Lovecraft's work. Well let's start off with the statement of Randolph Carter. Because Have you got a telephone? (laughs) Yeah exactly. (laughs) So there's Randolph Carter and his good friend Harley Warren and one of them disappears down below a grave into the ground and, well, never seen again. But we get accounts of what's down there, don't we? I think well, that the best account has to be from uh, Very Scary Solstice. Harley got devoured by the undead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would direct you to uh, Chris Lackey and Greg Johnson's yeah. uh, video, which sums up the story very well, I think. But, but let's actually look at what Lovecraft said. Our lanterns disclosed the top of a flight of stone steps, dripping with some detestable ichor of the inner earth, and bordered by moist walls encrusted with nitre. We never actually see down there, do we? We just hear it on the other end of the phone, some guy describing, not even describing very much, just there's this weird places down there and there are other things other beings down there yeah one of the things i love about the statement of randolph carter is the fact that it creates this element of mystery the fact that you're getting all these reports secondhand and i i don't know that to me is a lot more horrible i mean if if we had this description of someone going down to these catacombs beneath the graveyard and seeing zombies or whatever down there it would be quite banal but the fact that we're just getting brief little impressions that there's something horrible down here and this sort of hidden world of the undead, my mind can fill in details more horrible to me than, than anyone could put on paper. And of course, we get other views of a strange world at the start of Lovecraft's story, The Outsider. It was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gaze steadily at them for relief. Nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower. There was one black tower which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined and could not be ascended, save by a nigh-well impossible climb up the sheer wall stone by stone. We did discuss The Outsider in episode 94, so if you want to hear a bit more about that, go back to that episode. But I think it's worth reiterating a few points about it now, because they're really relevant to our discussion. Yeah, because he seems to start off in this, we're not really sure what this world is, but we gather that it's perhaps underground, because he climbs up and up and up a tower, and then comes out through a, a hole in the ground into a crypt, and then into our world. So we can deduce that he must have been underground. Yes, but at the same time, we sort of get the impression as this goes on that this underworld was an underworld of the mind, that he was buried in perhaps a fairly small tomb, but he'd, as a dead dreamer, had pictured this underworld reflection of the world that he'd known that was now subterranean, hidden from light. And this sort of ties together a lot of Lovecraftian elements, you know, that that link between dreams and the underworld. And I think this theme of 
underground places and the depths of one's mind or subconscious is something we'll come back to. I like to read it just a bit more literally that he is in some underground tower. But the thing that's more fascinating for me, and it's again similarly with statement Randolph Carter, who the hell built them? But not only yeah. if you try and take it literally, you suddenly have to accept that there are trees and forests underground mm-hmm. as well. That's very journey to the centre of the earth, things like yeah, fields yeah, yeah. of giant yeah. mushrooms and things like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we'll certainly come back to the link between Lovecraft and Hollow Earth theory later. Mm. And then we have the classic, the rats in the walls. We get some odd goings-on with sounds in the walls and so on, and then they go down into the cellar, and we can kind of buy into all this, but then they start digging down below the cellar. And what do they find? We turned to that apparently boundless depth of midnight cavern, where no ray of light from the cliff could penetrate. We shall never know what sightless Stygian worlds yawn beyond that little distance we went, for it was decided that such secrets are not good for mankind. And this, for me, really sums up this Lovecraftian idea of the Hollow Earth. This is Lovecraft implying that this vast underground space beneath Exxon Priory is just a hint at a larger world contained down there, a world potentially full of wonders and horrors and things beyond human imagining. Just the idea of that gives me chills. It was a twilit grotto of enormous height, stretching away farther than any eye could see, a subterranean world of limitless mystery and horrible suggestion. There were buildings and other architectural remains. In one terrified glance, I saw a weird pattern of tumuli, a savage circle of monoliths, and a low-domed Roman ruin, a sprawling Saxon pile, and an early English edifice of wood. So not only is this a vast hidden underground world but there have been civilizations rising and falling there in parallel with those above the earth or at least those civilizations from above have been visiting this place and constructing places of worship it's almost like it's a halfway house here that that they've come down and made a stone circle perhaps to almost to interface with this world but i guess the question i want to ask myself is what kind of person what kind of group of people would want to head down to this lightless, strange, eerie world full of black bubbling rivers and strange creatures and think, this is where we belong, this is where we're going to have our civilization. this is where we're going to raise our children, this is where we're going to leave our mark upon the world, here hidden from the sun. Uh, this is not a normal human thing to do. Th- that's actually a fairly interesting jumping-off point if we wanted to do a scenario inspired by all this. Maybe even a Dark Ages scenario or, or something set even earlier, where maybe we're playing people who are part of a civilization that is being driven underground or has decided to go underground, or we're encountering people who have come up to the light for the first time in ages and trying to understand what has made them like this. Well, the only word I can keep coming back to is outsider. Again, going back to the story we looked at a moment ago, Mm. there's obviously a disconnect between the civilizations because otherwise humanity on the surface would know about the one immediately beneath its feet. So there has to be some kind of ostracization or some kind of separation between the two. Maybe those that have been driven, say, as outsiders, those people that are different, that have been exiled from whatever civilization that they were previously part of and driven underground. What if instead of being driven underground, they've been called? Mm Mm-hmm. And then we have the caves below Kingsport in the festival. 
It was a silent, shocking descent, and I observed, after a horrible interval, that the walls and steps were changing in nature, as if chiselled out of the solid rock. After more eons of descent, I saw some side passages or burrows leading from unknown recesses of blackness to the shaft of nighted mystery. Soon they became excessively numerous, like impious catacombs of nameless menace, and their pungent odour of decay grew quite unbearable. I knew we must have passed down through the mountain and beneath the earth of Kingsport itself, and I shivered that a town should be so aged and maggoty with subterraneous evil. And we do see some of those monstrous fungi here in this underground place. Yeah, certainly this was an influence on me when I wrote a certain section of The Two-Headed Serpent uh, that took place in vast underground space. Just that idea that place could be so tainted by the weirdness that was there that even things like fungus had been altered by it. I suppose this reading that we just had also ties in a little bit with what we just heard with the rats in the walls, because there is this implication of a connection to a larger whole, you know, these catacombs and tunnels that, that are leading out from there. I mean, for a start, there's the question of what it was that created them. We perhaps see a little hint of that in the festival, with its wormy wizards. I'd like to think that this and Ex Priory and perhaps some of the other places we'll hear about in this episode are somehow all parts of a larger whole, that you know these tunnels grow to be part of a larger network, that we're seeing hints of, of some underworld that is beyond human imagining, that just stretches everywhere under our feet, that there is this whole secret world that we are just oblivious to, filled with nightmares. Another story we did an episode on, back in episode 82, is Pickman's Model. And I think this is one of the more definitive ones when it comes to Lovecraft's relationship with the underground, even though we don't see the underground space too explicitly. We see in Pickman's studio, I mean, they go down to the cellar, so again, it's another cellar. But it's that well that's down there, the well with the wooden cover, the fact that something, which we know is a ghoul, comes up from it later. But it's the implication of what that well connects to. I guess you won't wonder now why I have to steer clear of subways and cellars. And I think this is probably in Lovecraft the time that we see a protagonist more than any other who is frightened by what he has discovered underground. We certainly see plenty of other people who've discovered things underground who have reason to be frightened of them. But this time, I mean, this is someone who has been so traumatised by realising that there are ghoul warrens and these ghouls are running out into underground spaces all over the city and snatching people and devouring them, that he himself will now no longer go beneath the earth, even to catch a subway train. And then in the story The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, we find many different underground spaces. This story travels across the lands of the dreamland and... Yeah, we, we find underground caverns, tunnels, all sorts of different places to explore. There's one common uh, motif that keeps coming up there. I mean, Carter keeps passing by these doorways that just lead down into blackness and he gets uh, a sight of, of just these stone steps leading down. And, yeah, it's just this implication that, again, in the Dreamlands, there is this series of underground spaces, these underworlds, that are so filled with nightmare that Carter just gets shivers even walking past them and doesn't want to look down into them. 
One I particularly like is the big stone slab that he has to lift to escape from the land of the Gugs. Yeah, going yeah. up the tower. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it connects the upper dreamlands from the lower dreamlands. And that very much parallels what we see in The Outsider with this lower lands and this upper lands connected through a trapdoor in a tower. But it's even the first time that Carter sees that in the Enchanted Forest. He knows that this is this horrible place where there is just this slab with a ring in it that leads down to somewhere. The first time he passes it, he's just heard stories. And I think, again, that sort of gets to the heart of what makes this so frightening in Lovecraft, that it's this hidden place filled with darkness that we don't want to look into. We know it's where the nightmares live, but we know with that nightmare logic that sooner or later we're going to have to face it. Another story in which we see a lot of underground action is, of course, at the Mountains of Madness, with the city of the older things. Say under ice for a large part of it, but then underground for the rest. But it's not just the city, the older things, it's the fact that, again, it seems to connect to this larger underground world where there are caverns down there, there's a sea that has never seen the sun. Dormant, rudimentary senses seem to start into vitality within me, telling of pits and voids peopled by floating horrors and leading to sunless crags and oceans and teeming cities of windowless basalt towers upon which no light ever shone. And again, it's the idea that, you know, he says cities, plural. So it's the idea that there are all these cities beneath the earth. Entire civilizations, the implications they're not human civilizations, have grown and fallen without us ever being aware of them, just hidden from our existence. Well, it does make mention in the story that the Elder Things created cities all across the Southern Hemisphere, some of them under the oceans and so forth. It may be references to those or it may be references to others entirely. That's one of the things I like about little references like this. This also sort of gives us license to build upon it in that context and imagine these great civilizations that are created by creatures that you know, Lovecraft maybe never even mentioned that you know, we can just make completely our own. And of course, Lovecraft was very influenced in The Mountains of Madness by Edgar Allan Poe's The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, which sort of takes a, a very similar setting and you know, really expands on the hollow earth idea of it. If you've read and enjoyed at The Mountains of Madness and want to see where a lot of it came from, I really do recommend that. And then we have the Antipodean subterranean space. In the shadow out of time, the lost Yithian city out there in the deserts, waiting for us to find it. Again, I remember when that turned up in a Call of Cthulhu campaign. I remember just walking and walking and walking. Australia's a big yeah. place. Yeah, so is that city. It's huge. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, the actual <laughs> city itself. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. massive. So, so basically what you're saying is the ultimate eldritch horror for you, Matt, is exercise. Yeah, God, it's like when I remember yeah, visions of walking around Providence. Yeah, just mm. it would never end. The tall, windowless ruins left by those brooding, half-material alien things that festered in Earth's nether abysses and against whose wind-like invisible forces the trapdoors were sealed and the sleepless sentinels posted. And once again, we're back to the idea that the underworld, this underground space, contains horrors that are trapped down there, going around and digging around in this, this underground space in the dark, and opening the wrong doors will release horrors that will destroy us all. And 
now we take a look at subterranean spaces in the game Call of Cthulhu. Well, there's an eternal appeal of underground spaces. If we look back to the very first role-playing game, Dungeons & Dragons, the clue is in the title, Dungeons. It was about underground spaces. And I can remember playing that game and wondering if I would ever be able to play a game outside of an underground <laughs> place. Would it be possible to run a game like in the wilderness or in a town? I couldn't really conceive of that. Madness, Paul. Madness. See, it'll, I'd, it'll never catch on. I'd be the type of guy if I was designing a, in, in inverted commas, dungeon to make it deliberately above ground just for that reason. So to have it as somewhere maybe like a giant maze with walls too high that you couldn't climb to the top of them and then cheat by moving, uh, just walking along the walls to the or top. Or shopping so, centre. Yeah, or, there you go. Or, or the one-way system in Dundee. But what's the appeal of these underground places? It seems like a perennial one, whether it be, you know, your classic dungeon bash or so many other games that we see that if we want horror, we tend to head underground because it's dark, there's unknown things... What else? Well, I think one of the simplest reasons why underground spaces are so popular in role-playing games is that it is probably the easiest way to structure a scenario. That if you're structuring a scenario geographically, moving from place to place, having this dungeon, this underground space that's connected by corridors or tunnels, provides a, a logical way of laying it all out and of trying to anticipate how the investigators or adventurers are going to get from point A to point B, because you can just visualise it. Whereas if you're a GM who's perhaps not very happy improvising, you might not be less happy with the idea of, you know, oh, they're going somewhere I hadn't thought of, I'm going to have to make that up. But if you have a dungeon, you know that they're not going to go anywhere you haven't got planned. Above ground, there's trees and there's sunshine and there's food and there's water and there's everything we need to sustain life. Below ground, we may come across water, but also... Where do we think of as demons being? Classically, hell is somewhere down there in the fiery pits below the earth. Well, it's not just hell. I, uh, when I was reading around uh, prior to this episode, I, just about every culture on earth has got this idea of the dead passing through to an underworld. Well, we tend to bury the dead in the ground. Yeah. Not exclusively, but... But certainly, yeah, I mean, this idea of the underworld being where the dead live is yeah it seems to be a universal human thing um so i'm I'm sure yeah this this certainly ties in with why we consider it to be such a frightening place also i guess in our modern world you know we've explored the world there's deep places in the ocean but there's also deep places in the earth that we haven't been to yet so the thought that there might be things underground that's kind of intriguing to us i think yeah, it's it's these places that even satellite views won't see. Well, going back to the idea of why exploring these places is is so frightening as well. Yeah, you know, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or Call of Cthulhu, as soon as you head underground into these places and you're isolated from all the things you were talking about before, you know, sunshine and food and water and stuff like that, you're reliant on the supplies you're taking with you. It's dark down there, so you need to bring your own light or you're groping around literally in darkness. You're then relying on a limited resource, whether it be candles or torches batteries, any of those things you're going to use up in fairly short time. And that's vulnerability, because as soon as that's taken away from you, if you're lost down there in the darkness, I mean, that is probably death. And from OD&D onwards, the monsters could see, you couldn't. Yeah. 
And it's really easy to get lost and lose track of time when you don't have the visual cues of the sun and the horizon and stuff like that. So underground is, I think, disorientating. I don't know about you two, but that idea of being trapped in the darkness, particularly in a tight space, absolutely terrifies me. I I genuinely cannot think of anything that scares me more. And thinking about underground spaces, it's hard to think about underground spaces and to explore that, that theme without coming up on the big elephant in the room, which would, of course, be hollow earth theory. I thought you were going to say the Wombles. Well, they do live underground, of course, don't they? And overground. Oh, yes. What am I thinking? (laughs) But, yeah, what is this all about, the the hollow earth theory? Been around a long time, right? So, what, from 1692, proposed by Edmund Haley. Yeah. There's a name we can conjure with yeah i mean halley was one of the uh, the founders of the royal society but he's probably best remembered these days for uh, having uh, halley's comet named after him because he was the first person to identify the fact that it was the same celestial body that was going back round and round uh, he was a very scientifically minded man and one of the things that he was interested in was the uh, navigation via magnetic north it was becoming realized around that time that magnetic north shifted and no one quite knew why and Halley came up with this idea that the reason that this was happening was that the magnetic north was not anchored to a physical point on the surface of the earth which he is actually right about or was right about but his proposal for explaining this was that there were concentric earths within our earth that there were you know three earths I don't know why he hit upon this number three but he wrote quite an extensive paper about it And he proposed that these inner worlds were populated and that they had their own light source. And this this is a fantastic thing that he said that any god that would create these inner worlds would not be so cruel as to deny them a light source. So decided that they were lit by phosphorescence, was he likened to will-o'-the-wisps in in marshes. If only he'd had polyhedral dice, he could well have come up with the first role-playing game. In 1692, we could have had, I don't know, what would it have been called? I guess Dungeons and Dragons. Expedition? Yes! (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can see this idea of these three spheres, you know, rotating independently in some way and causing the magnetic north to move. And, you know, one can see how you might kind of extrapolate that. But then going on to saying... Oh, and you know what? There are little people living in them as well. That's a bit of a leap, right? <laughs> it is. Especially yeah. as you say he was a scientist. You can imagine him putting this forward to the, I don't know, the, uh, you know, some academic body and they're all kind of nodding. And he's like, oh, and there are little people living down there as well. Like, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> it, it would have been a very different Hollow Earth expedition than we know. Nowhere near enough Nazis. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, certain of the more mystically minded members of the Nazis did actually believe in the Hollow Earth. They were partly influenced in that by another figure who was uh, you know, key in this, uh, an American by the name of John Sims uh, in the early 19th century, who proposed that there were entrances to the Hollow Earth. Uh, he, he was expanding upon Halley's theories that there were entrances at the Poles, the North and South Poles. He did have reasons for believing this, but they were fairly odd but he did actually try to convince the american government to fund an expedition up to the north pole in order to find the entrance to the hollow earth it never happened within his lifetime but it did happen shortly afterwards and they sent the first polar expedition up there to try to find this in i think 1838 or so wow 
So that was one way of perhaps getting into the, the hollow earth or underground. But in role-playing games, let's think about how our player characters might get underground. I mean, there are a few obvious ones, but you know, there's, there's quite a lot of different ones. So you could enter by some access point at the poles of the earth, perhaps. Another one that we've talked about, burial places, that we see like in the statement of Randolph Carter. Graves, tombs, crypts, catacombs, all these things underground, places of the dead. Could be particularly thinking of ghouls here. The ways into underground tunnels. And if you wanted to get more metaphysical with it, which probably doesn't necessarily apply so much with Call of Cthulhu, and that does really link very much with the idea of uh, the underground is the underworld, that you do have these catacombs and great warrens where you know the dead or the undead live, but then you know these are extending to somewhere you know perhaps. Uh, a bit less substantial. And I suppose you could tie this in with the Dreamlands and the idea that the Dreamlands is where some more powerful dreamers end up when they die, that perhaps the more macabre-minded dreamers who anticipated this kind of thing have maybe even created their own underworld that is tied in with all these. That can make for quite a nightmarish place. And then below houses, you know, in every horror game standard, we've got the, the cellar. Don't go down in the cellar, because you know there's going to be something nasty down there. Well, yeah, there usually is, right? This is why I'm really glad that my house is built on a concrete block. Concrete. It's just a whole concrete foundation. There's no cellar, apart from that bloody safe we still can't get in. Well, there you go. That's kind of a little underground space, right? There's a very small one. There's a safe embedded in the floor of Matt's new house. That contains wonders and horrors. That's been down there for 30 years and no one has a key to. Yeah. I'd like to think that the previous tenants just left an open tin of sardines in there. <laughs> That'd explain why the cat with the previous owner was always down there. <laughs> and then we see natural caves and underground rivers, so natural access ways into the underworld, kind of eaten away by water or other forms of erosion. Underground rivers particularly fascinate me. I, London, for example, is absolutely riddled with them, and you have rivers in London that just never see the light of day. Well, some of which have been covered up, right? Yeah, the um, fleet. To, yeah, yeah um, by construction purposefully. Yeah. Again, I think they sort of ties in with my fear of getting lost and trapped underground the idea of falling into this subterranean water and getting swept along there into darkness that is just pure nightmare i mean i have been caving once with a friend a long time ago and when he said let's go caving and we got the little head torches on and got dressed up for it I thought we're going to walk into a cave, you know, like going to like Cheddar Gorge or somewhere like that, where you see all the, the weird stalactites and stalagmites. No, we could go up to a cliff face and there's a hole in the ground about the size, a bit bigger than a sheet of A4 paper. <laughs> and he's like, OK, let's get in there then. So no. you basically have to <laughs> squeeze through. It's just big enough for me to sort of squeeze through. And then it kind of opens up into a... Not a room, you know, it's not a 10 foot by 10 foot corridor. Imagine you've taken a load of random rocks and put them together. There's a space in between them. And he's like, okay, we go through that space there. And obviously there's no corridor, right? But there's no flat surface. So it's just, you're just going over boulders and rocks that are sort of tumbled together with other ones over your head. So you could be going down, you know, I'm pointing towards a downward angle towards the floor that could be your next exit and then the next one is kind of an angle up towards the ceiling so you look back and you think which one of those did i come through 
Oh, I've God. no bloody idea. I, and, and when you talk about these boulders, iron, are they huge? Fairly, yeah. but are, are they all fairly static, or is oh, yeah. there ever that? You know, the, no, no, there's no, never totally. the feeling that by crawling through them, you could just cause a cave in behind you. No, these were completely safe um, places that were well established for underground exploration. <laughs> you, you Squeezing were, through a hole the size of an A4 sheet of paper, I mean, you call safe? I'm, I'm probably exaggerating <laughs> it, but it, you know, it wasn't very big. Smaller than the seat of a chair, say. Yeah, you, you and I have very different ideas of what is completely safe. <laughs> well, <laughs> they weren't, the rocks weren't going to move, you know what I mean? Yeah. My friend, he was an experienced caver, and this was a routine thing for him going down there. So he totally knew where he was, like the back of his hand. To me, if I'd have been down there five minutes and I'd have lost sight of him, I would have never found I'd still be down there now, I think. <laughs> No exaggeration, my palms are sweating yeah. just talking about this. But it was a real insight for me, and because it's so different down there to what I'd imagined before. I'd never imagined that. It is another world. And I guess I mean, we, we've seen this in the film The Descent. In Call of Cthulhu, what would make that even more frightening is not being alone down there. You talk about that feeling of having to squeeze through gaps, never quite knowing where you are. But, I mean, what if you were being hunted by something at the same time? Mm. See, the one that gets me for underground space is The Descent's good, so I quite, quite like that film. You ignore the fact that part two exists. Um, is Creep, mm. thinking of man-made underground spaces. That's some scary shit right there. Uh, yeah, I, along the lines of Creep, I mean, did you see the, I guess the film that probably inspired it more than anything else, uh, an older film from the 60s or 70s called Deathline? Yes, with Donald Pleasance. Yeah. yeah again, mind the dog! <laughs> they both play upon the, the same idea that there are hidden spaces in the London underground mm-hmm. where, you know, which it happens. In, in uh, Deathline, it's that there was a cave-in during the construction of part of the underground and the workers there got left for dead and ended up forming their own kind of small little cannibalistic society mm-hmm. and in creep it's he's the child of uh, one of the exp- of some experiments that were taking yes. place down there and he's just never left the kind of the labs occasionally for when he needs to go out and find someone to go and eat yeah london underground is is absolutely full of spaces like this i last month i went on a tour around some disused tunnels that hadn't been opened for about 50 years with my friend jane these were little time capsules i mean they still had posters up from the mid 60s and these little kind of booths and areas it it was weird because it felt like they should be part of the everyday life and structure of the tube but because they were sealed off and forgotten and, and derelict it at the same time felt very alien and claustrophobic and just the idea of, of stumbling into one of these spaces again, maybe even by accident, finding yourself in, in somewhere that, that looks familiar and looks like it should be safe but really isn't, is, I think, quite frightening. Oh, and, and another film I really should mention along those lines, uh, because it does have a Lovecraftian angle to it, is the Japanese horror film Marabito from 2004, made by, oh, I can't remember his name, the, the director of The Grudge which plays around with the idea of this sort of Lovecraftian underworld or you know, network of tunnels and, and a, a far stranger underworld uh, beneath Tokyo, and whether or not it just exists in the, the protagonist's mind. If this kind of thing excites you, see Marabito. So we have this idea of things underground being dark, hidden, scary, and I think that parallels you know, symbolically with the unconsciousness doesn't it the dark deep things we talk about sort of dredging things up out of our memories and burying memories or 
So it seems like this these underground worlds are a sort of manifestation of our darker selves, perhaps, or, or our fears. Well, mm. our fears of what lies within us. And mm. I, I think this is, you know, with, with my amateur psychologist hat on, this is probably, you know, what makes it so quintessentially Lovecraftian, that Lovecraft seemed to have this real fear of what lay in his family tree and of uh, falling into the madness that consumed his, his father and later his mother. His stories are, are riddled with horrors that lie in the subterranean places of the earth and in the dark depths of the sea, both of which are, I think play very similar symbolic roles. That there are places that we can almost glimpse that are hidden in shadows where the things we're afraid of live. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to see that as Lovecraft exploring, you know, what he was worried about lying hidden within himself. And now we put together some seeds for scenarios set underground. One of my favourites that I ran uh, was a scenario by Dan Harms, author of Encyclopedia Cthuliana, and it was called Digging Up the World. Mm-hmm. And it plays on... I don't think this is too much of a spoiler because this is there at the outset, I think. It plays on somebody who's got an obsession with digging. And we see this in the real world. I think this would be some inspiration for um, a modern-day scenario as well. We, we occasionally hear about somebody in, I think, London who's obsessed with digging underground to the point where they've dug under the road or under the neighbour's house and caused structural damage. And I can see this either leading into a scenario or just being something that you could inflict on one of the player characters as a result of a, a insanity. Yeah, it's a mania. Yeah, yeah, a mania for digging. I don't know what they do with all the soil. Do they do, like, great escape and just sort of <laughs> shake it out of their trouser legs or something down the street? But I mean, there are a couple of different reasons, like you say, why, you know, why people would do that. I mean, there, there's the people in London who have been stopped by uh, the authorities there from basically expanding their houses underground and building multiple levels, almost building a, a subterranean block of flats because it's been undermining the foundations of nearby properties. You know, the first question is, is why would someone do that? I mean, sure, you can build extra rooms and make your house bigger. But underground is also where you do the things you don't want the world to see. If you were a cultist or, you know, a cult organisation operating in plain sight within London, say, then having this network of underground rooms would give you somewhere to operate. But and also you're soundproofed as well, right? Absolutely. Maybe we should record in an underground room. OK, get you digging. get the shuffles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's this idea then that, you know, th- this is perhaps causing subsidence or undermining the foundations of nearby houses. So you could have perhaps even an intro to a scenario where you're a perfectly ordinary family or something like that. And then all of a sudden the bottom falls out of your cellar and you're suddenly connected with something horrible that a cult has created. Down Opening there. scene, you're all sat watching TV and then the TV falls through the floor. It's <laughs> <laughs> one way to get rid of Channel 5. I'd take it as somewhat in a somewhat different angle, because uh, one of the things that springs to mind for me is it's more of an American and kind of Mesoamerican thing. We don't get them so much over here, but sinkholes. Mm. Oh yeah, that yeah. suddenly these huge, vast areas that sometimes start taking out whole highways of patches of land will just sink into the ground. Um, if you've got a scientist thinking this this obsession for digging has to come from somewhere, if they've been researching why have so many of these sinkholes started appearing in a particular area, 
that they then start to look at are there patterns where these things are happening? Are they, um, again, are things being found in the, the remains of when they fall into the ground? And he or she is then starting to dig, trying to find what's connecting all these. And that's where their obsessions come from. There's one of those, the sinkhole in uh, Peter Jackson's film, The Lovely Bones. It is just somewhere where they just throw trash into it and it just sort of seems to get sucked underground. It's just a pit. It's not massive, but it just stuff just sinks into it and disappears to who knows where but but some of these sinkholes are like the size of city blocks and mm. larger and you know they, they crop up all over the place one of the things that sort of played around in my mind when i was thinking about this was going back to the idea of there being this hollow earth or this great underground space that's linked up between these lovecrafting stories We've seen that there are creatures and civilizations and so on that live down there. What if some of them had discovered a way of creating sinkholes as a way of perhaps dragging people underground for food or sacrifices or whatever purpose, or just simply looting buildings, um, getting whatever they need from the surface world? I was going to say, I have a word for you there. Morlock. Yes, (laughs) yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. But Shelley Scott, isn't it just a doll coming up for air? Yeah, or a Chthonian just, you know, messing around. But the idea of there being, you know, sorcerers or covens down there magically creating these sinkholes, I think, is actually a bit more interesting. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, also, talking about this idea of, of being driven to dig tunnels, I think we've all had the experience, or most of us have had the experience, of being a kid and wanting to dig holes and, you know, see what's down there. And the, this, you know, classic childish idea of, you know, I'm going to dig a hole to China if you're in the US or dig a hole to Australia if you're in the UK, that if we dig deep enough, we'll, we'll dig through the earth. If you had a group of child investigators or child player characters who were digging this hole, how would they react if they did dig down, not to Australia, but to some forgotten civilization or or some horror that had been buried, you know, maybe 10 feet below the earth Mm. and had been just there waiting for someone to uncover it? Another kind of underground structure that fascinates me is bomb shelters. There was this incredible bomb shelter, I think it's in Wiltshire in England, that's codenamed Burlington, that was created as an underground city in which uh, members of the government and the great and the good could flee if nuclear war came about and survive the fallout. And it basically is this entire self-contained town with all the facilities you might expect, just entirely underground. Yeah, I started thinking about what would happen if such a shelter got used during the Mythos End Times. Mm, Well, you can imagine people would know about it and go there. Even if it wasn't officially done, people would get in there and then maybe somebody shuts the doors. Yeah, and and then you end up potentially with this small civilization there sheltering from the coming of the Great Old Ones. That could be quite nightmarish. I mean, for a start, you're, you're, you're trapped underground. But also, the Great Old Ones aren't just physical presences. I mean, they transmit dreams and psychic impulses. People are driven to worship them. And harking back to a previous episode, that's survival horror. <laughs> yes. <laughs> This could almost be played as a sort of mythos form of paranoia that, you know, you end up with these different factions and groups forming down there in the darkness and people trying to keep civilization together while some people are becoming cultists and some people are trying to eradicate the cultists and, yeah. I suppose the way I'd use underground worlds, as mentioned previously, I'd like to do things somewhat counterpoint to expectations, things like the dungeon above ground and so on. What happens if someone stumbles through a gate and ends up in a place where they think is still overground, a bit like the outsider? 
And then it's later on in the scenario, you pull the rug out from under them and then they realise, oh shit, we are actually underground. Mm. We're in this underground forest. That's kind of the reveal. Yeah. yeah. That they're actually underground. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that sort of ties in with not so much, I think, Halley's uh, version of uh, The Hollow Earth, but I, I think it was John Sims who talked about the idea of there being, you know, suns underground. Mm. You could be down in, in the Hollow Earth and not even realise it. You look up in the sky, you see the sun there. I mean, what What's going to tell you that you're actually underground well i'd I'd describe it as being gray shifting clouds that's Mm -hmm. actually just a very high up phosphorescent cloud well there was a a star trek episode like that wasn't there Uh, for the world is hollow and i have touched the sky Uh, that must be an original series one just i don't recognize that yeah yeah and just one last idea i want to throw out there very quick idea a family move into a small town somewhere and just discover that every cellar in the town is linked to every other cellar by tunnels. Why? Meanwhile, on social media... Well, I see we have a new iTunes review, this time from Screaming Random. (laughs) I like that name. (laughs) I'm hooked. Great podcast. The range of knowledge goes way beyond gaming, keeping everything interesting and fun. Well, thank you very much. Screaming random for your comment. Most appreciated. And over on our Google Plus community, we have some comments about the role of comedy in RPGs. Another recent episode that we put out. And Trevor Hurst kicks off saying, I always take a serious approach to running Call of Cthulhu. I aim for the horror, the creeps, or at least a bit of disgust. I'm pleased to report that there have been times we have cried real tears from laughing at these games. And once I even choked on my own saliva. Call of Cthulhu is probably the funniest game I've ever played. If I tried to make it funny, it would be horrible. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? He says, I always take a serious approach to it, but, you know, it's the funniest game that he's played. I guess sometimes it's the funniest game and sometimes it's serious, but it's that combination. But, I mean, this was one of the disconnects we had when we were talking about it before on the episode, in that you, you, you didn't necessarily seem to see the funny side of it, and yet, when we look at any particular game session, think about how much of that time we spend laughing. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's not a game I intend to run comedically. It just happens. Yeah, I, I think I, it's... I blame the players. As Trevor says, it's not an intention to make it funny, usually. It just sometimes you burst out laughing. doesn't mean the whole thing's comedic. Um, just there are moments of comedy, yeah. And we had another comment on this topic by uh, Linus Larson, who said, A game that encourages zany acting, obvious puns or gonzo plots would grow tiresome rather quickly. Funnily enough, I don't find Call of Cthulhu that comedic. Sure, a genre-savvy table could find the tropes of the Lovecraftian investigation funny, gleefully playing along with their characters' ignorance and their player knowledge. I'm an eager proponent of rooting cosmic horror in reality, and as such, I want to avoid stylization and introduce the horror so slowly as not to overwhelm players to the point of absurdity. Addressing the first point, personally I do actually, as I mentioned in the episode, quite like the occasional gonzo game or game that's played absolutely for laughs. But on the whole, I agree that they don't tend to have longevity. I personally think they work well as one-shots. Yeah, and I guess this is something we've seen, is this contrivance that we make at the table sometimes as Call of Cthulhu players. When we're experienced at playing the game, we know quite a lot of the things that are going on. So we kind of know it's deep ones or whatever, or we've deduced that that's what it is. And there's this contrivance to sort of manifest an innocence of it all in your player character. 
And sometimes that disjunct, I think, can turn a bit comedic if we're trying to overly play the innocent, overly play the, oh, I don't know what's down in this place. Let's go take a look. I've had quite a lot of fun recently. I've been playing in Lynn Hardy's playtest of Children of Fear, and I've been playing a character who, at least in, in recent chapters, has been very much jumping to the supernaturalist's first conclusion for everything. It seems to lead to a different kind of comedy, particularly where it turns out there isn't a supernatural element behind some things, but where everyone else is doing the classic Call of Cthulhu thing of, of playing Agent Scully, and it's sort of, well, there must be a, a rational explanation for this, and it's sort of, no, it's ghouls. We've seen this a hundred times before, it's ghouls, we know it's ghouls, right? <laughs> And again, over on our Google Plus community, Christine Fisher makes the following comment about the comedy and role-playing games episode where we talked about Lamentations of the Flame Princess versus Call of Cthulhu. Body horror and sexual violence are too close to my real-life concerns about harassment and rape prevention behaviours that I've been taught since my teens. And the ugly occasions I've experienced real-life misogyny and even in-character misogyny being encouraged by the GM stroke keeper. I'm often the only female at the table, and Call of Cthulhu games are often late night slots in our local conventions, which just makes it worse when it happens. I end up getting skeeved out and nervous about leaving the room at the end of the night with these people, because I can't know what is really their mindset and what's their character. It's not a very pleasant picture she paints here. No. I feel kind of disturbed by this. That she's sitting down to play, I'm guessing, with people she doesn't know too well. Well, if it's a convention, yeah. I mean, that would make sense. Yeah. And if you're getting unpleasant things being said at the table, sexist things, misogynist things, you know, one can imagine all sorts of stuff being said. And among a close group of friends, they might be doing it in jest, but... As an outsider, you don't really know if they're joking or they're not, and well, I whether think they are or not, it's inappropriate, right? Yeah, but but I think it's also her perspective. I mean, this is something that, you know, as men, we don't necessarily think about very much, or because we, we have the luxury of not thinking about it. That perspective of feeling threatened by some of this stuff, because I've certainly had a couple of occasions where I've had people at the gaming table at conventions playing very creepy characters and sort of thinking, you know, how much of this are they putting on? Are they really like this? And at least on one occasion, at the end, the guy broke character, and I was really relieved to find out that he wasn't the terrifying psychopath he seemed to be. But I, I, I think as, you know, a fairly large bloke, I've never felt directly threatened by any of this. And it's a good reminder that that experience isn't universal. And I think as GM, I have spoken up once or twice when I've had, particularly there's somebody I know at the table who's playing a really over-the-top, intimidating person. And there's somebody I don't know. And I've just sort of broken the, the game for a moment and sort of said, you're playing this up really strongly. I'm not sometimes sure, is, is the person just role-playing being intimidated or are they actually being intimidated? Yeah. And if that's the case, then I want to step in and make sure that they're not actually themselves being intimidated. Yeah, and I don't think it's fair to expect people who are genuinely intimidated to be the ones to speak up no. because if they're not feeling safe already they don't necessarily want to draw more attention to themselves so at some point you've got to say you know is everybody okay with this yeah i mean it is a tricky one and it can be i think quite difficult straddling that line between trying to run a horror game where you're trying to encourage a bit of discomfort or fear and one where you're fostering the wrong kind of discomfort and fear 
I'd like to think I'm mostly on the right side of that, but I'm sure there are times where I've completely fucked that up. And to wrap up, what are our final thoughts about subterranean spaces in role-playing games? I hope there are wombles down there. It would make it a lot nicer place. It would. Well, certainly a tidier mm-hmm. one. Collecting the things <laughs> we leave behind. Mm-hmm. What, like dead adventurers and, and their, mm-hmm. their rations? and Spent ammunition. Yep. Mm-hmm. Or unspent in a lot of cases. Lost sanity points. Yeah. Like little sparkles the... in a computer game. Yeah, they've got to mm-hmm. go somewhere. Also, do you think the Wombles made it across the Atlantic? Does the programme make it to TV in America? I don't know. No, well, I doubt it. I'm if, sure it's on not, YouTube. Yeah, if not Google Wombles, your life will be enriched by the experience. Not much cosmic horror, though. But I guess the question is, do we use underground spaces a lot in our games, and, and are we drawn to do so? Personally, yes. I, mean, I I do use them for a lot of the reasons we've discussed. I mean, they're great places to intensify fear. And also, if I'm feeling lazy, they're a particularly easy way of structuring a scenario. Yeah, they're a good place for focusing play. Yeah, and you can get the players trapped down there. Yeah. I've used them in a couple of instances. Uh, thinking like the bomb shelter um, example. I've used that in a scenario. I've used a laboratory underground before use temples underground so yeah they they pop up occasionally Mm. but it's definitely one of those things that again just seems to fade into the background for me i hadn't really realized quite how significant and how prevalent they are in the stories well i think yeah because they are so pervasive in lovecraft that you know like like so many things that we take for granted in call of cthulhu they're things that have just become part of the fabric of the game and by stepping back and looking where it all came from we can get a a much better anticipation of what it all means Mm. Well, I think that about wraps it up for this week. So it's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes.com. <laughs> <laughs>